Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you're anywhere in the GovCon world, this podcast is for you. Today, we're talking real-world examples of how industry targets and shapes government acquisitions. We're thrilled to welcome Cameron Cousins and Amy Sadegzadeh from the Arbinger Institute to the podcast today. Let's listen in as Kevin talks to Cameron and Amy about what successful targeting looks like. Are you ready? Here we go. All right, so I got Amy and Cameron on the podcast. It's awesome to have uh, you know, Skyway customers on here, and, and it's really great to get a perspective of two successful people in the government market who are niched. So to get us started here, kind of give us the story of Arbinger. Like, how did you guys end up starting the government side of this business? Well, great. Thanks. Uh, it's good to be with you, Kevin. And to answer that question, both Amy and I uh, spent uh, careers in the military. I I spent uh, 28 years in uniform in the Army, and, and Amy currently still is a reservist, helicopter pilot, Navy avi- naval aviator. We were both clients of, of the Arbinger Institute, and it was just phenomenal, uh, the work that they did. They've Arbinger has uh, three international best-selling books out there, one of the best selling leadership books of all time is called Leadership and Self-Deception. And, and just reading it, it was transformative. And so as a client, our organization brought Arbinger in and with great results. And so I utilized Arbinger services to help in culture change in the organizations that uh, I was a part of. And it was just uh, so impactful. Amy came to Arbinger uh, when she got out of active duty. Uh, I came to Arbinger when I transitioned out of uh, also out of active duty, and and we've both kind of been with Arbinger and in standing up this government practice over the last five and a half years or so. Now, Amy, your your background is Navy, and so did you have a different experience finding Arbinger? It was similar. Uh, we were a client at the time, but I wasn't with Naval Aviation when I came across Arbinger. I was with Naval Special Warfare. And uh, my commanding officer at the time had read one of Arbinger's books in his uh, leadership PhD course, and the material really resonated with him. And he asked me to to actually contract with Arbinger and and bring them into the organization and and deliver the training to our team. And we also found it um, unbelievably impactful and helpful. And so when I had the opportunity to renew my training with Arbinger, um, I was uh, leaving the military at the time, and it just was really a a great coincidence that they were. Uh, looking for you know someone to start up the government practice and and I seem to be the one who was there at the right time <laughs> and so they brought me brought me on and I'm I've never looked back. It's the intersection of uh, what do they say the intersection of of uh, preparation and opportunity, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, how much of your work is is government? Are you guys specialized? Like your team is just a government team? Yeah, we we in the government practice our focus is on on the federal government. Amy and I are co-directors of the of the government vertical and so we handle just the federal our our federal government clients to include all of our Department of Defense uh, military organizations. And now when we had the pre-conversation we were prepping for this, you mentioned that you guys have have paid a lot of tuition <laughs> to learn how to do this on the government side. So tell me more about that. Amy and I, we, we both spent careers in, in the military. We, we don't have contracting backgrounds. And so this was really new to us. And so we have, over, over the course of that time, paid what we like to say we've paid a lot of tuition in, in learning. And in losing 
bids, uh, proposal bids. Early on, we were going after all sorts of things, and uh, and we learned that that just wasn't uh, it wasn't an effective use of our time and, and resources. And so now we do things very very differently. We're very targeted in our efforts. We have a high percentage win because we know what we're going after. We know what to not go after, and sometimes that's the most important is is the decision to not uh, go after an RFP. So what's the perfect RFE for you guys? What, what is that niche? Yeah, great question. I, I think the perfect RFP for us is where we have been working with a client. We do a lot of work with a lot of different government agencies. And so the perfect uh, client for us or the perfect engagement for us is, is where, where oftentimes we will go in and work with a client. We do training. We do executive coaching. And we do consulting. So we're a full service uh, firm in that perspective. And so we'll typically do an initial engagement. Oftentimes that's a, a training engagement, a, a couple of days on site with a client. And we'll, uh, we'll build into that some, some implementation consulting and coaching. And, and that will typically fall under a, a threshold, a training threshold of, uh, of the $25,000 government purchase card requirement. So the, the client experiences our work, and that work is, uh, is, is often they feel is transformative, and they want more of that. And so in that, um, that they've experienced our work, they know specifically what it is they want. We've provided them with uh, information sheets and, and so forth about how to talk about our work. We're working with them in that, in that phase where they're developing the, uh, the, their proposal. And so by the time that proposal comes out, that RFP, that RFP is, we, we've helped to shape that RFP. They know what they want. And, and we're not afraid of competition uh, because we are so niche in, in what we offer. Our, our, we offer what we offer is, is our intellectual property. So there's no one else in the world that can utilize our intellectual property. We don't license others to utilize that. So by the time those RFPs go, come out, we feel really, really comfortable going after those. So uh, it's funny that the reason I asked that question is what's the perfect RFP? And your point is the perfect RFP is one that you knew was coming out and what it's probably going to look like, which is, you know, targeting 101 is you just can't do that if you haven't been targeting. We've, we've learned, you know, we used to, we used to watch Fed biz ops every day, you know, and GovWin and, and, uh, and we'd look and see what was coming out. We'd look and, you know, see what was about to come out, but, uh, we have a very different strategy now. We, we go in and, and we're doing our business development efforts far, far out in advance and, and working with them in the development of, that, uh, of those requirements. And so we know um, oftentimes when, when it's coming out, we've, we've, we've been with them on this journey and, and the RFP, when that comes out, that's just part of this journey for us. And so, Amy, you mentioned that a lot of the stuff you guys go after is under twenty-five grand. What's the acquisition strategy the government uses for that? You mentioned government credit card. Is there is there some sort of acquisition procedures, or is that pretty much it? No, it's really the credit card. Um, you know, once we we realized that the commands we're working with could could make that decision on their own, could decide to make that twenty-five thousand dollar purchase uh, on their own, we started generating our, our products and arranging our products and talking to them about the number of people that they could fit into a training and, and stay under the 25,000. That's how we started. We started really saying, okay, you can get 60 people in a, in a course with us for 25,000. And what's changed is now we're more focused on the sustainment, what happens after that training. And so now we've reduced the amount of, uh, of people that can, 
can come through that initial training. And we've tacked on, uh, oh, but for under 25,000, now we can, we can help you uh, sustain and, and get greater ROI uh, from the material that we've delivered through consulting and, con- and coaching after the initial training. So we've reworked what fits under that 25, but really the, the credit card is it. If, if we can start the, the engagement with that organization uh, where they can buy from us with a credit card, well, we have an opportunity to get them hooked. Now they're, they're going to start seeing their own organizational objectives through the lens that we've provided them with our content. And they're going to see that they can achieve their, their organizational goals and, and whatever they're going for uh, through that lens. And so now that's, that's how it, it starts to shape the requirement that they have. And that requirement starts to include, you know, language that, that they learn in our course. And so, <laughs> so it really, it really sets us apart. So when the requirement actually comes out, it already includes language that, you know, directs the, the reviewers of the solicitations right back to us. So the, the targeting is never done. In fact, you talked about, you started with the 25 grand and then you figured out you can actually solve their problem even better with a different package under the 25 grand, mm-hmm. but you're, you're coming to them in a way that can actually use you. Right. Um, so yeah, this is a great example of some of this is, is traditional block and tackling of business is you, you have to stay on top of the targeting and understand what your customer wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that you're a story of start small, build a relationship. And I think a lot of times people in, in, in government think, oh, I have to go after that giant RFP. I have to be on XYZ IDIQ. Serve your customer. Focus yeah. on serving the customer and, and keep niching. And that's why, I, that's why I was excited to have you, you two on the podcast because you're great, like a poster children for the value of, of targeting. <laughs> well, let me, let me go one step beyond that. So, um, so that's to keep us under the 25,000, right? But now when we know that we're putting together a proposal for them, this is a marketing proposal, not where we're responding to an RFP. And when we're, we're giving them a marketing proposal for what does the next four or five years look like with us? And so, um, so they're, they're getting that information from us and they're starting to think, okay, how do we incorporate this in to our next couple of years of, of our work here? And we, we give them a proposal that says, okay, here's what your first year is going to look like with us. Here's how much it might cost. Here's what the second year, third year. And then that forces them to, you know, to go out and see who else can, can, can provide something similar. And most often people can't. Um, and then what we're seeing as a result of that is we're getting a lot of uh, sole source task orders against our GSA schedule that have one base year and four or five option years. Yeah, by niching what you do and niching the targets and niching the acquisition strategies that you know make sense for you. So very cool. So speaking of acquisition strategies, do you have like a, a cycle, like a, like a calendar year that people you do more training? Do you find yourself sprinting at certain times? I, I think it really starts for us in early summer as we're uh, kind of ending that in the middle of that third quarter, we know that our government clients have to have their budgets prepared for the following year. Uh, so we're starting to send them uh, a ton of information at that time so that they can look at that longer view for the, the coming year. And then we know the next thing that's going to happen is they're going to end that fiscal year um, in September. And there could be in uh, August, September off- opportunities for extra money where they've, uh, they have unfunded requests there. They can utilize unfunded requests or UFERS. Uh, with leftover funds to, you know, purchase stuff from us. We know there's always a lull in like October, beginning of November. Um, so we're, that's, a, that's a great time for us to kind of come back together internally and strengthen our product or, or um, build, you know, relationships with our clients. And then we can see that in January, okay, things are going to really start coming towards us and it's going to build even more up until that summer period. So that's really the prime business time for us. Cameron, what would you add to that? 
Yeah, the, the, the other thing to, to, to add to that is oftentimes at the end between, we'll call it between July and the end of September, a lot of, a lot of purchasing is going on because, as, as you know, Kevin, in the, in the federal government, with continuing resolutions, uh, the first quarter, everybody's holding back, uh, rarely spending anything above what they spent last year. And then by the last quarter, it's like open floodgates and, and they can't spend fast enough. And so while the, the spending itself, oftentimes there is a lapse starting on one October until e- the end of December, whenever, whenever the budget uh, issues get resolved. For us, that's a high delivery time because a lot of our clients will pay for things in September that we will then deliver in October, November, and December. So our busiest time for delivery is is typically going to be from 15 July until 15 December. Very, very busy, very, very engaged in the government space. So, Amy, from back to the the, the managing of the contracts, um, is there anything that that jumps out at you that you wish the government folks understood about companies like yours that have niched down to this is exactly what we do and it doesn't make sense for us to come out of our lane? Yeah, there are two things that I'm thinking of with respect to like niching down uh, and and being very specific about what we offer. When we first started, we didn't have product sheets that described our work and how our work fit into common challenges that an organization might face. So writing those and then providing those to our clients when we send them our quotes, I mean, it seems so simple, right? But in the beginning, we, we just weren't thinking like that. Once we started doing that, we realized that we're providing that common language for, um, for those organizations to, to you know, it, it's a struggle, right? When someone you know, usually the people that we're working with, you know, the contracting team has said, okay, so, you know, you've got to write the requirement or you have to write the sole source justification. And, and that person is like struggling, right? They're like, man, what do I, where do I start? Well, one of the simplest things to do is just look at the information sheets that you've been given and, and pair that up with the, you know, the mission or the, the objectives that your organization's trying to accomplish. And that's usually a great place you know, we can't write sole source justifications for them, obviously. We can't be doing that work for them, but we can provide them information. We can put information out there in the public that really describes how we are different from other organizations. And then they can use that as they are, if they are wanting to, you know, to, to try to procure with us and they can use that in their requirement, which I think helps their, their procurement process. The other thing I would say is that we've learned that the way we've structured our team, we have, you know, folks that are engaging with our um, you know, with their their uh, clients and the government, but I'm kind of reserved to engage with contracting officers, and um, those relationships. You know, our sales team, the relationships they have with their, their clients are so important, right? I mean, just incredibly important. But just as important are the relationships that that I'm trying to build. And what I've found is that there are contracting officers out there that are just so unbelievably helpful, and especially to small businesses. I will never forget one contracting officer in particular who as we had been awarded a you know one or two sole source small sole source contracts uh, from one particular organization but as that organization was working with us and they decided they wanted more and more they're working with their procurement team and this contracting officer um, reached out to me and said look you're about to move into the big leagues like you're about to you're about to have to respond to a, a major solicitation on on FBO um, FBO at the time uh, Sam now and she said you 
you have to have someone help you write this proposal. <laughs> you know, she said, you, you, it's like you have to put on the big girl pants now and go out and find a company to help you write the, this proposal. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to fall right out of this game. And that was really valuable information uh, for me at the time because we were just new and in, in getting started in the government, in the government space. I'll say the other thing that she did, which I thought was um, unique, was that you know, we had an industry day for this, uh, this big contract that we ended up winning. And she said on the industry day to all the vendors, she said, look, uh, I want to help you write a good proposal. I want to make sure you understand what I think makes up a good proposal. And so I invite any of you to schedule time with me, come down here, and I'll be happy to spend a couple hours with you and go over what, what I expect to see in a proposal. And um, we took her up on that and we all bought tickets. We all flew and, and we spent a whole day with her. And I hope that those other vendors took advantage of that too, because it was just invaluable uh, training for us and an incredible relationship that, uh, that we were able to, um, to build with a contracting officer. And so um, I, I think that there are, there are those opportunities that exist out there to build the relationship with the contracting officer and to understand what they're looking for in their organization and what their standards are so that when the, that chance to respond to the RFP comes out, you're already writing it in a way that you know that they're going to they're gonna be like, this is what I've been looking for. We talk about the value of communication all the time. And so kudos to the contracting officer for using the market research time zone to really get the communication out there. And it's cool for you to tell that story because sometimes contracting officers feel like I'm doing this, but you know, is it really helping anybody? Mm-hmm. And again, this is a great example of, yes, it absolutely helped. And, and the big takeaway from the industry side to me is this helped so much because you were targeting. Mm-hmm. If you hadn't been targeting, if you hadn't been focused on that particular type of contract, that particular type of agency, that particular customer, she wouldn't have had the, the capacity and to, to spend the time with you. Plus, you would have been so broad in your questions that you wouldn't have gotten as much value. So mm. again, you two are poster children <laughs> for the, <laughs> the value of targeting. Kevin, something else comes to mind as I heard Amy talk about this, that I think our, our work at its heart centers around helping individuals and teams collaborate better and reduce friction and conflict in their workplace and to be able to uh, collaborate and innovate more. And what we, what it's interesting because what we often find is we're working with clients. Typically they are, um, our, our target is senior leaders in organizations that are trying to uh, change the culture of their organization. And, and so Oftentimes, those people, more often than not, in fact, in the majority of our cases, those people have never met a contracting officer before. They're on the front lines. They're, you know, SESs, GS-15s. They, the whole contracting world is, is just, uh, they, 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 they're clueless about it more often than not. And so when, when they are told, hey, in order to go forward, you've got to now, this has to enter into a, a large contract. Uh, proposal and so forth. What it, what we sometimes find is that there ends up being contention between them and the contracting officer that we work with. So our work Shocking. <laughs> at the core of it is our, at the core of it is really helpful because we also help our client, not necessarily the contracting officer because the contracting officer hasn't experienced our work, but we really work with our client to help our client see the challenges of the contracting officer and to help them try to be helpful to the contracting officer and patient to give them strategies to successfully be able to collaborate with their contracting officer because no one wins. No one wins when there's contention between 
the end user and and the contracting officer as oftentimes we have been in the middle of that and it and it sometimes can get ugly so we now go into those relationships prepared to um, ensure that there's a uh, d- doing everything we can do to make sure that the, that the end user is considering the goals and objectives and challenges of the contracting officer and making sure that they're working in a way that's having a positive impact on that contracting officer. Like Cameron said, everyone thinks the contracting officer's only answer is no <laughs> when you approach them about wanting to buy something from a particular company or organization. But in reality, the contracting officer has a thousand ways to get to yes. And you know, if you can approach them from the right mindset, with the right mindset, they're happy to help you get to yes. And so that, I, that, at least that's been my takeaway from the contracting officers that we've worked with. Very cool. Well, I, I appreciate this is a great discussion. Uh, a lot of great nuggets in here. So how can folks get a hold of you and, and learn more about what you guys are doing? Great question. So we, we, you can find us at, uh, at Arbinger, www.arbinger.com. Uh, name of our organization, the Arbinger Institute. Uh, we've got, as I mentioned, uh, three best-selling books. Leadership and Self-Deception is our is our first international bestseller, one of the best-selling leadership books of all time. You can get that on Amazon. Uh, our next uh, best-selling book was The Anatomy of Peace. Uh, it is, for the last uh, about 12 to 14 years, has been uh, number one or two in the world in conflict resolution on many lists. And our most recent bestseller is The Outward Mindset. So uh, you can pick any of those up at uh, Amazon or your local bookstore. Uh, reach out to us at, uh, at arbinger.com and we'd be happy to, to work with you. Awesome. Well, thank you much for being on here and uh, have a great day. Thanks. Great to be with you, Kevin. Wow, that was great information. We'd like to thank Cameron and Amy for taking the time to talk to Kevin and talk through what successful targeting looks like. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we invite you to check out the Skyway community at skywaymember.com. The Skyway community is the essential resource for anyone at any stage of starting, running, or growing a business in the GovCon world. We speak GovCon. Personal members of the community get access to all of our learning and training materials starting at just $20 a month. Professional members get access to Skyway's team of contracting officers through the Ask a Contracting Officer Forum, and premium members get custom consulting as part of their memberships. To learn more, give us a call at 877-884-5280 or check us out at skywaymember.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.